Welcome. I'm Eric Fleming, host of A Moment with Eric Fleming, the podcast of our time. I want to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then I need you to do a few things. First, I need subscribers. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming. Your subscription allows an independent podcaster like me the freedom to speak truth to power and to expand and improve the show. Second, leave a five-star review for the podcast on the streaming service you listen to it. That will help the podcast tremendously. Third, go to the website, momenteric.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast, leave reviews and comments, listen to past episodes, and even learn a little bit about your host. Lastly, don't keep this a secret like it's your own personal guilty pleasure. Tell someone else about the podcast. Encourage others to listen to the podcast and share the podcast on your social media platforms because it is time to make this moment a movement. Thanks in advance for supporting the podcast of our time. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And today we have another jam-packed episode. We've got three guests that I know that you're going to be interested in hearing from. But before we get started, it's time for another moment of news with Grace G. Thanks, Eric. Maine has disqualified Donald Trump from its presidential primary ballot for 2024 due to his involvement in the January 6, 2021 Capitol riot. Claudine Gay resigned as Harvard president amidst controversy over allegations of plagiarism and anti-Semitism. Following talks between U.S. and Mexican officials, both countries have agreed to collaborate more intensely to manage the elevated levels of migration at their border. A federal judge in Georgia upheld a Republican-drawn congressional map, dismissing claims that it diluted the voting power of black residents. A spate of bomb threats that led to temporary evacuations of several U.S. statehouses, which were later determined to be hoaxes. A New York appeals court rejected the National Rifle Association's attempt to halt a corruption investigation by State Attorney General Letitia James. The U.S. Military Academy at West Point can continue considering race in admissions, as a judge rejected a challenge by an anti-affirmative action group. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine vetoed a bill banning gender-affirming care for transgender youth and restricting transgender athletes in sports. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals allowed a California law banning carrying guns in most public places to proceed. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that Texas emergency room doctors are not obliged to perform abortions. An imam was shot and killed outside a Newark, New Jersey mosque, with no suspect or motive yet identified. A Colorado man was arrested for arson, robbery, and burglary after breaking into the Colorado Supreme Court building and setting a fire. Drug makers are set to increase prices on over 500 drugs in the U.S. in January. 
The U.S. Treasury reported that the federal government's public debt has surpassed $34 trillion. And former U.S. Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson died at the age of 88. I am Grace G., and this has been a Moment of News. All right. Thank you, Grace. And now it's time for our first guest. Ladies and gentlemen, our first guest is going to be Keith Strop. Keith Strop is a Washington, D.C. public interest attorney who formed Normal in 1970. Strop obtained his undergraduate degree in political science from the University of Illinois in 1965. And in 1968, he graduated from Georgetown Law School in Washington, D.C. Strop first smoked marijuana when he was a first-year law student and has been a regular smoker since. Following two years as staff counsel for the National Commission on Product Safety, following law school, a job that allowed him to avoid the Vietnam War with a critical skills deferment, Strop founded Normal and ran the organization through 1979, during which time 11 states decriminalized minor marijuana offenses. Strop has also practiced criminal law, lobbied on Capitol Hill for family farmers and artists, and for several years served as executive director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, the NACDL. In 1994, Strop resumed his work with Normal, rejoining the board of directors and serving again as executive director to 2004. He is currently Normal's legal counsel. 1992, Strop was the recipient of the Richard J. Dennis Drug Peace Award for Outstanding Achievement in the Field of Drug Policy Reform, presented by the Drug Policy Foundation in Washington, D.C. In 2010, he received the Al Horn Award for Advancing the Cause of Justice from the Normal Legal Committee. And in 2012, Strop received the High Times Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2013, Strop published a history of normal entitled It's Normal to Smoke Pot, the 40-year fight for marijuana smokers' rights. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, Keith Strop. All right, Keith Strop, how you doing, sir? I'm doing fine, thank you. Well, I am honored to have you on. Uh, uh, you have been a historical figure uh, in in American politics, and um, you know I wanted I wanted to have somebody on that has been involved in a movement for a long time. And um, so, what I normally like to do when I start my podcast is that with a guest. I try to give them a quote, either something they may have said, something they've written in a book, or something that relates to the work that they do. And so your quote is going to be, the legalization of marijuana is not a dangerous experiment. The prohibition is the experiment, and it has failed dramatically with millions of victims all around the world. What does that quote mean to you? Well, when we founded Normal back in late 1970, um, it was the result of the fact that 
there had been this war on drugs that continued to expand and effectively was a war on marijuana smokers. Uh, the vast majority of drug arrests were marijuana arrests and roughly 90% of the arrests were for personal use, just people smoking a joint. They weren't dealing, they weren't growing, etc. So we established a group purposely uh, based on some work I had done with consumer advocate Ralph Nader. Uh, and we wanted to focus on the consumer. In this case, the consumer is the smoker. Um, and it was our position then, and it remains so now, that responsible marijuana smokers should be treated fairly in all aspects of their lives. And the first major goal is to stop arresting smokers, stop treating marijuana smokers like criminals. Uh, at at the height of the war against marijuana smokers, we had nearly 900,000 people a year arrested on marijuana charges. Now, we've made a lot of progress in the last 20 years. We now have 22 states or 24 states that have legalized marijuana. And I think I think it's 38 that have legalized medical use of marijuana. But um, we still got more than 200,000 arrests every year in this country. So we have a lot of people who are having their lives lives unfairly disrupted. They're thrown out of school if they're a student, thrown out of federal subsidized housing if they qualify for subsidized housing. There are serious ramifications from a criminal arrest and conviction, even though public attitudes have changed enormously. When we started the organization, Gallup had just done their first survey asking how many Americans supported legalizing marijuana, and it was only 12%. Uh, today, we actually have four or five national polls, including Gallup, that show 70% now support the full legalization of marijuana. So you can see that over a period of time, it took us a lot longer than we had thought, obviously, when we started 50 years ago. Uh, but we've largely won the hearts and minds of the American public. They have concluded that prohibition causes far more harm than the use of marijuana itself. So you've dedicated 53 years of your life toward the legalization of marijuana. Why, why, why was this cause so important to you? It had a lot to do with uh, the Vietnam War and the anti-Vietnam War protests. I graduated Georgetown Law School in 1968, and it was just at the height of the anti-Vietnam War movement. Um, and when you would go to the uh, major anti-war demonstrations here in Washington, there'd sometimes be three or four, even 500,000 people attend those. Uh, what you could not help but see was that half of them were smoking marijuana, maybe not half, but certainly a, a significant section of those demonstrators were smoking marijuana because marijuana smoking had become kind of a symbolic protest against the war. If you remember when uh, draft dodgers, as they, they used to call us, uh, were oftentimes burning their draft card in a city park, they were almost always smoking a joint at the same time. Um, so at any event, I, in order to stay out of that war, I'd had a couple of fraternity brothers who, uh, undergraduate from my undergraduate days, who had been drafted and sent to Vietnam and came home in body bags. Mm. So uh, for my generation, my contemporaries, the big challenge for most of us was how the hell do we stay out of the draft? Well, with the help of some good lawyers uh, who were advising draft resistors or draft dodgers, um, 
I actually managed to get what was called a critical skills deferment. It suggests that the job you have back home is important to the health, safety, and welfare of the country. So if your draft board determines you qualify, then instead of being drafted, you can serve your two years working on that important job at home. I had been offered a job just as I graduated Georgetown Law School by a national commission called the National Commission on Product Safety. Sounds terribly important. It wasn't that important, but it was a result of some work that consumer advocate Ralph Nader had done. And during those two years, I had the opportunity to work around Ralph closely and to be introduced to the concept of public interest law, where you use your law degree to try to impact public policy rather than representing individual clients. I was um, exhilarated by public interest law. I thought it offered enormous opportunities and kind of a more interesting job choice than traditional law. But I wasn't quite sure. I, by the time the commission ended, ended, I was 27 years old. I could no longer be drafted. That was the maximum age then. And for the first time in my life, I had a choice about what I really want to do with the rest of my life. And I, by that point, I first smoked marijuana when I was a freshman at Georgetown Law School in 1965. So by that point, I had been smoking for about five, six years. And it seemed to me that I, I like this concept of public interest law, but what really mattered to me was I didn't like being thought of as a criminal. I didn't like the risk that when I smoked marijuana, I, I could uh, lose my law degree. I could be, you know, I could be destroyed. So I, in a kind of naive fashion, and I think some altruism when you're young, it's easy to be both naive and altruistic. Um, I pulled some friends together and found it normal as a, a marijuana smoker's lobby. And uh, somehow here we are 55 years later, and we've made a lot of progress, but we still have a lot of work to do. So obviously you're reading my notes uh, because I was going to ask you a question <laughs> about going from 12% to 70%. So to shorten it, what, what do you think has been the shift? Why do you think people have now become pro-legalization? I think, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> perhaps the single most important step in that whole process was when the use of medical marijuana began to be accepted. In the early part of the reform movement, uh, we were focused on what, what we used to call decriminalizing marijuana, where you stopped treating the smoker as a, cry, a criminal, but you nonetheless did not establish a legally regulated market. It was kind of a half a step. And we decriminalized marijuana in 11 states in the 1970s. But, um, we then ran out of steam, uh, frankly, when Ronald Reagan was president and uh, Nancy Reagan had her just say no program and the parents groups. Uh, we lost support for a few years during the late 70s and up to uh, about the mid 80s. But in night and we went, I should say, uh, we went 18 years between when we won our last decriminalization state. That was in 1978. It was Nebraska. We went 18 years without another statewide victory. But the first one that finally did happen was in 1996, and it was California, and by voter initiative, they legalized the medical use of marijuana. Now, that surprised a lot of people who weren't familiar, hadn't been following the issue, but marijuana was listed in the U.S. Pharmacopeia as a 
drug that doctors could prescribe all during the 1800s. In fact, up until about the 1920s, you could, a doctor could still prescribe medical marijuana. So there was a history of it, but it wasn't a well-known history. Uh, mostly the only people who smoked during those years were uh, minorities. Uh, they were jazz musicians and people kind of on the fringes of the culture. So it hadn't had not changed the mainstream public attitudes. But once people began to realize that somebody in their family who had cancer could undergo the chemotherapy and overcome the nausea and vomiting by smoking marijuana, or if they had glaucoma, they could hold back the progress of the glaucoma and maintain their sight by smoking marijuana, or they had MS, for example. Marijuana is one of the most effective drugs uh, to deal with the symptoms of MS. Well, once average Americans, serious-minded people, began to see that up close, it was difficult for them to maintain their reefer madness mentality. And it wasn't their fault that they had that reefer madness. It's because the government was spouting propaganda for 50 years, and actually more like 75 years. So uh, for the early years, for us to talk about full legalization, it frightened people. But once they began to see that it was, a, in fact, a very valuable medicine, then you realize, now, wait a minute. If this is a medicine that helps seriously ill patients, uh, it doesn't seem to me like it should be treated like a crime. And I think that's what helped us get over the hump. Once people began to deal with marijuana as a perhaps uh, important medical uh, option rather than something that undesirable people used and they used to think it led to heroin or whatever. Um, it was e easy to go from that step into full legalization. For example, as I mentioned, in 1996, California was the first state to legalize medical use. But by 2012, we then got our first two states, and that wasn't that long, long ago. We got our first two states for full legalization. It was Washington and uh, Colorado. Now, as I say, we have 22 states. Um, so in terms of changing uh, public attitudes, you had to first inform and educate people that marijuana was a relatively harmless drug. And the medical use of marijuana allowed us to do that. Um, what are the... Oh, by the way, if y'all want to see uh, a funny, funny movie, go to YouTube and find... A Reefer Madness. That is one of the most hilarious movies ever made. And I think the government paid for it or, or sponsored it or something. But it is literally one of the funniest it, movies it, you will watch. There's <laughs> one other one too. Marijuana, Marijuana Assassin of Youth. Those two came out about the same time. And you know, they showed crazed people smoking. You remember that piano player? That, yeah, and that's the classic the, scene. <laughs> one of the allegations of at the time was that if you smoke marijuana, it made white women want to sleep with black men. Well, you know, back in the 1930s, that just was not supposed to happen. <laughs> so uh, we started off with a lot of misinformation, but over a period of time, we finally overcame that. Yes, sir. So speaking about good information, what are the benefits to legalization? Well, um, from the consumer standpoint, of course, it means that you can obtain your marijuana from a safe and secure environment instead of having to buy it on the black market where you don't know if it has pesticides or heavy metals or if they had other things added to it that would be unhealthy. 
Um, you buy it on a black market. You buy what the guy has. Once you legalize marijuana, not only do you have uh, state licensed dispensaries, but the marijuana itself has to be tested before it's sold uh, by a state certified lab. So you know there that it is pure marijuana, that it's it's not been adulterated by something. You know the labeling is accurate. When you buy your marijuana from a state legal store, it tells you right on there what percent of THC, and in some of them they even list the CBD and other ingredients, but primarily it's the T and THC that gets people high. And so that's what most recreational smokers are interested in. Um, and obviously, once you have legalization, the numbers of people who are subject to being arrested and mistreated or over from over-policing, and that were mainly minority communities where the people have paid the price for that, um, although plenty of us white boys also paid the price for it, um, it, it changes the whole environment in that it's similar to going walking into a grocery store or walking into a jewelry store. Uh, they're clean, they're pleasant, they're safe, and the product you're buying is is safe. Yeah, and... You know, a lot of the states have started doing it, especially when Colorado legalized it. And um, they had passed an amendment prior to legalizing it that said that any surplus tax money would go back to the citizens. And so I think the first couple of years, people in Colorado were getting checks from their government because of the tax revenue they were getting from marijuana sales. Well, and and I should have mentioned that as an additional uh, positive factor. Once you have legalization, a state will inevitably raise tens of millions of dollars a year in, in new tax revenue. In fact, in the larger states, it's, it's over a billion dollars. And uh, that money is directed usually towards things like drug abuse education, drug treatment programs. Some In some states, a certain percentage is focused on giving teachers a, a, a higher rate of pay. I mean, there, there are lots of good uses you can put that tax money to. And those of us who smoke are more than willing to pay a fair tax in order to not be a treat, treated as a criminal. I got to tell you a funny story real quick. So in my prior life, I was a state legislator in Mississippi. And there was a, a state senator who was a former law enforcement officer. And I had a law enforcement background too, but he um, he introduced a bill to tax marijuana, even though it wasn't legal in the state of Mississippi. He wanted to tax it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I was, you know, raising, raising sand about that. And so they literally had, which was kind of unprecedented, they literally had the senator come to the well of the House to explain the bill because the bill made it out of committee and they were, they were, and I was trying to, uh, kill it. Right. And so I basically challenged him. I said, you do understand that if we pass this, Mississippi will legalize marijuana. Now the U S Supreme court will help us with that decision. But the minute that we pass this, basically we're legalizing. Oh no, gentlemen, we're not going to do that. I said, okay, y'all pass it and see what the U S Supreme court tells you is going to happen. And, and you actually might yeah. legalize marijuana for the whole country. Now, is that the gentleman's intent? And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. So the bill, for, you know, the bill died at that particular point, but it was just kind of like, 
you know, he was trying to be smart and figure, well, you can do it. And I had to remind him in the state of Mississippi, a tax collector does not have to reveal tax information to law enforcement. So if an officer comes in, well, we want to see if he paid taxes on marijuana, the tax collector's like, no, you can't see that. That's that's not in your purview. So I, I just wanted to throw that as an aside. And I think Mississippi has legalized well, if you, me- medical marijuana since then. Uh, I think they have a, a, a weak med- medical marijuana program. As I recall, it's one of those where they don't allow you to smoke flour. Uh, it has to be marijuana extracts and, you know, edibles and things like that. Right. Uh, but it's a start, start in the right direction. And by the way, that point you made about uh, taxing an illegal product, there was a long time in this country where we had what was called the marijuana tax stamp. Even though marijuana was illegal, if you if they came in and busted you, and you had a couple of ounces of marijuana in, they found in your desk drawer, um, if it didn't have a tax stamp, that was a separate crime. It was first illegal to have the marijuana, and then it was illegal to have the marijuana without the tax you know, stamp on it. But, of course, in reality, who the hell's going to pay the tax? And that, at that point, it was a federal tax stamp. You're going to send the federal government money and say, by the way, I owe you this money because I have marijuana. They would be knocking on your door 12 hours later. <laughs> so it was always a, a crazy system, and finally the courts threw it out. Right. Now, do you think that all states that legalize the recreational use of marijuana should automatically pardon all those who have been convicted on possession, intent to sell, and distribution charges? Yes, I think any nonviolent marijuana-related offense, once you legalize marijuana, there is just no justification for continuing to leave those convictions on people's records. In some states, for example, Missouri, I think they just did uh, more than 100,000 expungements, and it's a new legalization law just passed in the last few months or took effect in the last few months. Um, But uh, almost every state now that does legalize includes a provision where either they allow people with a record to apply for expungement, but in the better proposals, they do it automatically. The individual doesn't even have to apply. The state, simply the attorney general's office, eliminates all of those records. Also, there are a number of states now where uh, an employee is not permitted to drug test uh, for marijuana smoking in advance of uh, applying for a job. In other words, the old traditional way was if you apply for a job uh, and they make you an offer, one of the conditions is, but first you have to pass a drug test. Well, now that marijuana is legal in 24 states, uh, as long as you're not high on the job, it should be none of the, the business of your employer. You could, you should be allowed to smoke on the weekends or smoke in the evening when you're relaxing at home, just like people can have a beer or, or a, a shot of bourbon or whatever. Um, again, we still have a number of states where even though it's been legalized, you can still be fired if you test positive for marijuana. They, they like to talk about maintaining a drug-free workplace. Well, it's not a drug-free workplace. Your workers are perfectly free to go out at noon and have four or five beers and come back to work. But nonetheless, we're, we are making progress. And as I say, our goal is we want, we want responsible marijuana smokers to be treated fairly in all aspects of their, their lives. And that includes DUI, that includes uh, child custody issues, includes job discrimination, um, as long as you're not high on the job, then your marijuana use should have be of no interest to your 
your employer. Yeah, one of one of the biggest advocates for the uh, pardoning or expulsion of records, uh, Michelle Alexander, uh, who uh, her, a lot of her work uh, was used to do the show uh, on Netflix 13th that Ava DuVernay produced and directed. Um, and she's been one of the biggest proponents as far as, you know, going to states that when they entertain legalizing, uh, she's like, so y'all gonna, y'all gonna let all these, these folks out of jail, right? <laughs> you know, that's her big thing. Uh, and so I hope that that, that becomes more of a pattern and a, and a policy decision to, to do that. Um, although we still have this, the, the, the contradiction with the federal law. And it kind of, kind of, no, kinda no ex- doubt about it. Yeah, kind of explain what President Biden's administration did with the scheduling of of marijuana. Well, uh, first off, we should we should acknowledge that um, in his past political history, uh, Biden was a real drug warrior. He was a champion of mandatory penalties for drug offenders, etc. So he, he was one of the people largely responsible. Uh, for locking up so many people in the 50s and 60s and 70s, et cetera. But he has he he has had to sort of reexamine his position on that. Once you start seeing the polling numbers where more than half the country favored our position instead of his, and now it's up to 70 percent. But he's still cautious. And I have a feeling that we may not change federal law until we have a new president. We have a new democratic president down the road. And I, I think almost without question, we would legalize it federally. But what he has done, uh, Biden has at least proposed that there are five schedules under the, the Federal Controlled Substances Act. And schedule one are the ones that are deemed most dangerous and have no medical use. And then schedule two through five are those that have limited medical use. And finally, when you get down to five, it's even over-the-counter drugs. He has proposed that we take marijuana out of Schedule One, where it has been in since the Controlled Substances Act was established in 1970, uh, where, as I say, it, it's there with uh, drugs like heroin. Uh, even cocaine is scheduled, too, because they, they use it for ear, nose, and throat purposes, et cetera. Some doctors do. Um, but Moving to Schedule 3 is a step in the right direction, but it's not going to eliminate the problem. It's still going to be illegal uh, to use recreationally, so you're still going to have a conflict between these 24 states that have legalized it and the federal government. However, I will say this. The federal government for the last, well, since 2012, since we first started legalizing marijuana, but even before that, even with medical use, if they wanted to, in 1996, when California first legalized medical use, the federal government could likely have gone into federal court and enjoined that law and every other medical use law that's been passed. And they certainly could go into federal court now and enjoin the recreational laws. But it's interesting how these things build up and get a life of their own. Once the feds kind of hesitated and let the states decide if they want to experiment with new policy, we'll, we'll let them do it. Uh, they establish a history. It's going to be very hard for anybody to turn around. In fact, I think impossible. It, if, if some new president decided to do a crackdown on marijuana smoking in this country and to use the criminal law, I think they pay an incredible political price for it. 
So what what do you see now as the biggest impediments or obstacles against legalization? It's um, elected officials are always primarily concerned with getting reelected. You know, they like to talk in terms of the policies they stand for, but the reality is they want to keep their job. So always they're a step or two or more behind the public. So we've educated the public generally. We have 70% support for full legalization, but we've still got, you know, 30 states that don't have, or 25, 26 states that don't have legalization because the elected officials are concerned that if they vote for legalization, it's kind of like your Mississippi history. Uh, they're concerned they'll be thrown out of office at the next election. They'll be they'll be marginalized. They'll be treated like some sort of radicals. So um, th that's the only thing holding us back. And every year, we, we've won at least a couple of states every year since 2012. And I think that trend will continue. But you realize what we're faced now is we're faced with most of the states that haven't done anything are in the South. And cultural issues are tough to deal with in the Southern states. I, we all recognize that. So I'm sure Mississippi and Alabama and Oklahoma, so those will probably be the last three states in the country to legalize marijuana. But even they will do it, I'm quite certain. It'll just take a few years longer. You can imagine if you're in a state where they haven't legalized marijuana and you've got legalization states on two or three sides of your state, what you're seeing is you're seeing your citizens cross the state line and spend their money in the neighboring state where that money could be going to your state treasury. So it becomes harder and harder for elected officials to ignore that option when their neighbors are doing well. One of the things, too, that's helped us most, the concern initially was that if you legalize marijuana for adults, somehow teenagers and youngsters are, are going to uh, experiment more with marijuana than they did in the past. Strangely, uh, the data shows just the opposite. When you legalize marijuana, teen marijuana use rates tend to go down. Now, maybe it's that old thing of, of kids uh, don't want to do anything their parents do. <laughs> and, and once they realize that their parents may be smoking marijuana, some of them lose interest in it, which I think is kind of culturally fascinating. But there's there are just a couple of studies out in the last few months showing the same thing this year. The states that have legalized marijuana have lower rates of teen marijuana use than the states that have maintained prohibition. All right, uh, Mr. Strop, how, how can people get in touch with you and find out more about uh, normal and, and, and the issue itself about marijuana legalization? Um, like most uh, nonprofits, the best way is to go to our website. It's www.normal.org. Remember, NORMAL is an acronym. It has no A in it, N-O, <clears throat> excuse me, N-O-R-M-L, and it's .org because we're a nonprofit. If you go to that website, you'll see incredible quantities of helpful information, uh, including we list every state law that's been proposed or that's pending, every federal law that's pending. We make it easy for citizens to contact their elected officials on this issue. Uh, so. Uh, if they prefer to call in rather than than uh, email, the number is 202-483-5500. All right, Mr. Strop. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Um, uh, I've, I've kind of admired you and your organization from afar. 
especially as being a a, a policymaker at one time, uh, trying to see if I could get Mississippi <laughs> to to move forward. But uh, um, you know, and 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 the lifetime dedication that you've put into it is really really an honor. Uh, so again, thank you for what you do, and and thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for your generous comments and delighted to be on your program. Thank you. All right. And, and okay, guys, we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So now it's time for our second guest, Daryl Jones. Daryl Jones graduated with honors from the United States Air Force Academy in 1977. He began serving his country as a F-4 Phantom II fighter pilot for the U.S. Air Force. After seven years on active duty, Mr. Jones left the Air Force to attend the University of Miami School of Law, where he graduated cum laude in 1987. He began his legal career as a federal judicial clerk for Judge Peter Fay in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and then joined the Dade County Attorney's Office in the Aviation Division. In 1989, Captain Jones joined the Puerto Rico Air National Guard as an A-7D Corsair II fighter pilot and one year later joined the U.S. Air Force Reserve at Homestead Air Force Base in Florida as an F-16 fighter pilot. 1990, Daryl Jones was elected to the Florida House of Representatives and in 1992 to the Florida Senate, where he served until 2002. Senator Jones was the 1998 nominee for Secretary of the Air Force and the 2006 Democratic nominee for Lieutenant Governor of Florida. A United States Air Force retired colonel, Daryl is also active in numerous Miami civic and community organizations. In 2008, Daryl Jones founded the law office of Daryl L. Jones, a real estate law firm with 30 years as a U.S. Air Force officer, 12 years in the Florida legislature, and 23 years of legal experience, Jones has been able to run a successful business helping homeowners remain in their homes and providing financial counseling through their affiliate. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, Daryl Jones. All right, Senator Colonel Daryl Jones, what's going on, my brother? How you doing? Uh, Eric, it's great to be with you today. It's I'm good, doing fine. Uh, it's good to have you. Uh, it's been a long time uh, since you and I have personally talked, but uh -huh. you have always been a person that uh, I have always respected, and the fact that I could say that we were colleagues, uh, that mm -hmm. we, we fought the same battles just in different states, uh, is, right. is an honor for me as well. So, um, I want to start off like I normally start off with, um, my guests is that I try to throw a quote out there that I think either ties into what they did or what they do or something they may have said, uh, or written in a book. So mm -hmm. your quote is real simple. It's the cost of Liberty 
is less than the price of repression. When you hear that quote, what is what is what what is your take on that? It's less than the cost of repression. Well, that's absolutely true. Because you know, being a military man, uh we always knew that freedom wasn't free and that uh, there were some tremendous costs that you had to pay in order to have this uh, democratic republic that we call the United States of America. And uh, so the costs of doing that can be extremely high and hopefully we keep those costs low. But the cost of repression, what we saw you know, after the Civil War going into reconstruction, moving forward into uh, uh, the fight that we experienced and, and being from Mississippi, particularly growing up in the 60s, you know, in Mississippi and and seeing all of the things uh, that, that we go into a lot deeper if you want to, uh, that happened. The costs of repression uh, as relates to African-Americans, uh, Hispanics, uh, any other minority group that you want to name, uh, with the possible exception of today's uh, Asian American community, but they even they are still experiencing some forms of repression and and the Jewish community as well. Uh, the the cost of repression puts a stain, not only a stain, a, a big blot on the soul of America because in America uh, we are a diverse community and. As so many people said, that diversity is a large part of our strength. The ability to have so many different points of view to be and experiences to be able to draw from and to find solutions to problems uh, because of those that diversity of experiences uh, makes us great. It makes our country as great as it is. And so, without the the, the repression, takes that away. Right. All right. So you talked about being from Mississippi, what did you learn growing up in Jackson, Mississippi that was the most valuable in your political career? Wow. Probably my dad uh, being, uh, uh, he was a high school teacher at Lanier, uh, where I graduated from Lanier High School. And uh, my parents uh, did everything that they could to keep the concept of racial injustice away from me. Uh, even though Lanier was an all-Black high school and we went to, even after integration, you know, it was still an all-Black high school. Uh, and they wanted me to believe that I had the capability of accomplishing anything. And uh, I think they were successful in helping me develop that. Uh, but I wasn't blind to everything else that was going on. You know, you could see, I. My mom hiding, when I was a small child, my mom hiding my eyes from a body that was hanging from a tree as we drove by, you know, but I still looked between her fingers and saw the legs, mm. you know, stuff like that. You know, it's, you never forget things like that. So how, this is kind but, of- But in my political, yeah, in my political career, uh, the, the, uh, the, the the belief that that I could be just as good as anyone else. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, and, and do as much as anyone else. Yeah, 
what I was going to really say, it was kind of a hard segue, but what I was going to ask you was, how tough was that to go to school when your dad was a teacher there? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't get away with anything. <laughs> On senior skip day, there were only two seniors still in the class. It was me and J.C. Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. I, I, I just remember my landlord's daughter substituted <laughs> one day in a class that I was in, I must have been like in second or third grade, and that was like the worst day <laughs> my my school tenure. You know, sure. yeah. Um, you were elected to the Florida legislature basically thirty one years ago. You you had the privilege of running for governor of the state and lieutenant governor. What has changed in Florida politics over those? 30-some-odd years. Wow. Our last Democratic governor was uh, former U.S. Senator Lawton Childs. And uh, he was elected in the same time I was, in 1990, and uh, served uh, two terms. He beat Jeb Bush during his second term, and then Jeb Bush was subsequently elected after that. Uh, we haven't had a Democratic governor since then. Uh, in 1992, we had a Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate. And uh, uh, the Republicans were successful in basically co-opting uh, the Black Caucus and joining them in uh, designing districts uh, that were heavily African-American. And it kept a lot of the whites from being elected as Democrats. And the, the strategy was that the Republicans believed that they could go toe-to-toe -to -toe and bleached out districts, all-white districts, against Democrats and win. And they were correct. And so that changed everything in Florida politics, from being a Democratic stronghold to being a swing state to being a solidly red state over the last 20, uh, 30 years. So, you know, being a red state in, let's say, Michigan, traditionally, had been different than being a red state, say in 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 the South. Mm -hmm. Now it it seems to be more homogeneous and stuff, and and it's 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 the same. I, well, I don't have to tone it down, but since it's my show, but I, I was trying to be polite. But the same vitriol that you hear, uh, you know, in 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 certain places, you hear where well, you're hearing it all over now. You didn't used to you didn't used to hear it. And Florida was always kind of a state where it was competitive. Even even when the Democrats had a majority, it still was a state where it's like you didn't take that for granted. Uh right. because of the 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 population makeup. It's not just black and white like most southern states. You have a huge Latino population to right. that that's not that doesn't vote in a block per se. Um, what, what, I guess the, the nuance is what made it from a competitive Republican, well, a, a, a place where Republicans and, and Democrats could really debate to the situation we're in now where somebody like a Ron DeSantis can get elected and do the things that he's doing. You know, there's a there's a quote from Will Rogers, 
uh, kind of a cowboy comedian. And uh, he once said that uh, I don't belong to any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. <laughs> I heard that when I first got elected. I, uh, some, sometimes we get well organized and sometimes we're not as Democrats. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, it seems that the Republicans are far more organized on a consistent basis. Sometimes they have elements of not being organized as well. But uh, uh, in Florida, they've done one heck of a job. They've had great leadership of the Republican Party. They uh, now the Republican, uh, the chair of the Republican Party is being asked to step down right now in the state of Florida because of rape allegations uh, that I won't go into. But um, and he's he's trying to hang in there. And uh, by the way, the Republican Party, to their credit, just reduces salary to a dollar a year. Hmm. So uh, to, as a way to urge him out. Right. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis, when he first ran, uh, did not resemble the person that he is right now. Uh, I mean, he was a congressman prior to that. But uh, uh and he was conservative, uh, but so were a lot of other people. Uh, you know, he has uh, uh, really shown who he is right now. And I think that uh, a lot of the people of the state of Florida, a lot of the voters are disenchanted with him, even though he won by a landslide against Charlie Crist, who's a former Republican governor who switched to become a Democrat. And I served with him in the Senate. Um, I, Florida doesn't like people who flip-flop. They don't like people that switch, you know, from one part or the other. No, that, that was not going to be a successful campaign, um, even though I, I did support Charlie Crist in that campaign and, and knew him well and know him well. Uh, Ron DeSantis, on the other hand, has been able to follow uh, a model uh, not unlike Rick Scott, who's now a U.S. Senator from the state of Florida. Rick Scott uh, originally ran without having held, having held political office. He uh, ran a, a healthcare company uh, that defrauded the United States government under Medicare and uh, uh, was very wealthy when he left. Uh, put $70 million of his own money into the campaign and became governor, uh, largely on the strength of being a Navy veteran and uh, having a lot of positive commercials, <laughs> you know, that. I think moved a lot of people. He had a great marketing team. Ron DeSantis, on the other hand, wasn't rich. He was a former uh, military person himself. Uh, he also helped use that as well. But um, uh, he he had a good aggressive style about him. Now, when he ran against uh, and Andrew, uh, former mayor of Tallahassee, Andrew uh, Gillum, Andrew Gillum. When he ran against Andrew Gillum, uh, he barely beat him. Andrew lost by, what, 30,000 votes, you know, uh, which is less than 1%. Uh, but uh, as a sitting incumbent can all usually do, he was able to consolidate power, uh, that being Ron DeSantis, and win overwhelming victory the second time. But Florida has, has changed. Uh, there are a lot of strange things that happen in our state sometimes. You know, 
people kind of joke about the state of Florida on occasion because so many interesting things happen down here. But uh, we have uh, the Democratic Party in the state of Florida still has a long way to go when it comes to getting itself well organized, becoming viable uh, enough to make people believe that we can win statewide elections. Yeah, and I, I, I'll say this um, as an outsider. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that you you ran against Chris when you were running for lieutenant governor. You were on that ticket uh, against him when he ran for governor. And my, right. my, my sentiment was kind of not so much um, the, the party switching, but the, uh, the missing of the, the moment, right? Because you had a, the young lady who was still the only Democrat statewide elected official, and I forgive me because she runs the Democratic Party now, right? Nikki Free. Yeah, Nikki Free. And I thought the way that the dynamics were shaping up in American politics that somebody like her could have, you know, uh, galvanized the base and maybe reached some independent voters. To, if not beat DeSantis, to at least be as competitive as Andrew was in the right. race, and that was that right. was just kind of my and I felt that the the Democratic structure in Florida kind of made a mistake in trying to push somebody that you know had a track record being a congressman, being a governor, as opposed to somebody who was really the only standard bearer the state really had. And mm-hmm. and and really pushing her uh, in 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 the environment that was going on, I, I just felt that they missed that opportunity. And I think if she had been the nominee, maybe we wouldn't be dealing with a Ron DeSantis trying to be president. That's just that was just me as an outside observer. You used the Will Rogers analogy, <laughs> kind of what what happened where the party didn't get behind Nikki and now then they turn around and made her the chair of the party. You know, Nikki uh, had never run for political office before when she ran for agriculture commission. And uh, she was elected statewide office. It's a great entree because there's not a lot of attention paid to that position outside of the rural areas of the state of Florida. And if you can get some support, and she's a dynamic young lady. Uh, and she was successful in getting the support that she needed, and she was elected to that statewide office uh, almost as an afterthought, because a lot of people, uh, at least in the urban communities where I live, <laughs> weren't even thinking about that race. We just voted for it. Uh, primarily, uh, there, there's a tendency to support female candidates here in Florida. I mean, uh, heck. Uh, if you in Broward County, which is the Democratic stronghold for the state of Florida, yeah, uh, it's almost impossible to beat a female candidate in an open seat. Wow! In an open seat, judges, uh, anything else. Uh, I did a statistical analysis of that over the last few elections. It's it's impressive. Um, all the, all other things being equal, so. Uh, the more guys that are in the race and fewer women than guys get elected and the more women get in the race, they're, they're absolutely going to get elected down here. I don't know if that trends uh, nationwide or not, but uh, 
we're, we're going to see it coming. When I was in law school, I saw so many sharp, uh, interesting ladies that uh, I wondered why they had not taken over the world already. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, uh, just some very sharp and dynamic people. And now we're starting to see some of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I respect her a lot. Like I said, from a distance, but uh, mm-hmm. I just I just felt that was a missed opportunity. But let me let me get back with you real quick. Um, well, since we since we started talking about DeSantis, let me ask this question. What should we know about Ron DeSantis that most Americans don't know? <laughs> wow. Because the reality is the, the way that after that Colorado decision, people might have to make a decision between him and Nikki Haley at this particular point. So that that's that's becoming more of a reality. So what 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 should we know about him since y'all have to deal with him as a governor? Well, he wasn't excuse me, sorry about that. He um he wasn't gonna win Florida against Donald Trump. Uh, and I don't know. He will probably win it against Nikki Haley, uh, since he is the incumbent governor, and uh, uh, there's still uh, Florida still has a ways to go when it comes to believing that a woman can be president. Uh, I think it's possible, but a lot of the state doesn't believe that. <clears throat> uh, I'm not sure. You know, I don't know him that well. I, I would just say that. Um, he is uh, a lot of people here who are Democrats believe that he is as dangerous or even more dangerous than Donald Trump. Mm. And uh, because he is uh, showing some weakness now in his political organization, but he's as uh, as dogmatic and authoritarian. Uh, in the way he runs the state, as uh, Donald Trump was or could be if he's elected president. So uh, we here a lot of people w- were had expressed opinions to me that they were more afraid of DeSantis winning than they were of Donald Trump winning, even though Donald Trump had already instigated uh, January sixth. Right. So yeah. Uh, the the Colorado Supreme Court decision is is really interesting. I think they hit it on the na- nail that on the on the head, um, and uh, it's going to be. Uh, I've read through almost all of that 145 page opinion, 134 page opinion, and uh, it's going to be really interesting to see whether or not the Supreme Court come up with a different decision. Yeah, I I think. I, I, I tend to agree with you. I have not had a chance to read it all the way through, but, you know, hitting the highlights, uh, it, it, you know, it basically, you know, st- you know, it made it plain. It's like they, they basically said it's in plain language. <laughs> and, yeah. and the president qualifies as an officer of the United States. Therefore he can't right. run in Colorado. Um, I don't, you know, because a lot of states don't have state law that corresponds with that section. Right. So that's Colorado is the perfect place to go. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how that how that all shakes out and and what um, former president is going to do. All right. So now I want to get back 
to you because I think it's you you have a unique insight on 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 this because you were caught up in the meat grinder of the U.S. Senate's advise and consent process. Um, <laughs> What was what was what was your takeaway from that? And 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 I'm going to ask you a personal question: Have people come to you since then to ask for advice, especially in it, being in Florida? If somebody from Florida gets appointed, have people reached out and you say, "Hey, man, how did you deal with that?" You know, uh, a little bit off the subject. The one thing that people ask me about the most is Rosewood and the Hurricane Andrew Trust Fund. Uh, but but I and I still get questions on that from around the country. Yeah. But uh, as it relates to being confirmed by the U.S. Senate, uh, when uh, I was nominee for Secretary of the Air Force under Bill Clinton, uh, I don't I don't get a lot of questions about that. Uh, that was a largely political situation. Monica Lewinsky was happening at the at that time, and uh, for people who who don't know, you know, uh, Bill Clinton was impeached because of that situation with with Monica Lewinsky, who was an intern at the time. And, um, uh, you know, he thought that he could pull me through. Uh, he ended up being too weak politically to be able to do it. And uh, they weren't confirming uh, any of his nominees during that time. So uh, uh, he had a, a, a several, I think it was around 14 or so nominees that were in play right at that moment. And uh, almost all of them withdrew their name from further consideration. I was he, he personally asked me not to do it. Uh, Mr. Cl uh, President Clinton, uh, not to withdraw my name from further consideration. I was thinking about it, given the circumstances. Uh, I actually ended up meeting with uh, both uh, Thad Cochran and um, who, by the way, nominated me to the Air Force Cabinet uh, as a congressman. Yeah. Uh, and he was in strong support of me getting that position. Uh, uh, the other uh, U.S. senator at the time, uh, he was a uh, majority leader, Trent Lott, uh, met with me personally as well and asked me to withdraw my name. So the two U.S. senators from Mississippi, uh, and both of them recognized that I was a native son yeah. of, of Mississippi. And uh, he wanted me to pull out, and uh, he said it would be very difficult on me if I did not. The president asked me to stay. I did, and we had a nine-hour hearing that uh, that attempted to that ended in a tie vote. Uh, even though the Republicans had a majority on the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senator Strom Thurmond, the chair, voted for me, mm. and that, ended, that caused a tie vote. Yeah, yeah. That's and to me, that's interesting that people don't try to pick your brain about that because. It would seem to me that if, you know, if I was, especially an African-American, if Joe Biden or any president came to me and said, hey, Fleming, we want to consider you for something, I'm calling you. I'm reaching out to you in some kind of way because you've been through it. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just, I'm just amazed that, that people haven't done that. But I'm also glad that you reminded me about the two pieces of legislation that you did get through. And that was kind of the gist of why I asked you the question about the, the mood in Florida, because you represented the district that Andrew really, really hit. And you were able right. to get money for uh, that area at a state level. 
And then you were also basically the first person in any state legislature in the United States to get a reparations bill through at Mm -hmm. the, the Rosewood bill. So I guess to piggyback on the earlier question, could you get either one in the in the way the legislature is set up now in Florida? Is there any way you could get any of that legislation through, even the aid in in the in a crisis situation? Well, Hurricane Andrew was ninety two. We still had we had a, a twenty twenty Senate Democrat Republican when I was in the Senate. Uh, right after that, I got elected to the Senate that year. Yeah, and we still had a Democratic majority in the House. Uh, the Hurricane Andrew Trust Fund uh, was a strategic move. It, it was a, a use. Uh, I, I discovered uh, that there was an opportunity to gather all of the additional sales tax that would be generated over and above the original projections because of all the construction and all the, all the purchases that would happen and their insurance claims were being paid after 40,000 homes were destroyed by Hurricane Andrew in 1992. September 24th. Uh, and I persuaded the legislature without knowing what the number was going to be. I was the only two people who knew what the number was going to be, myself and the revenue projector for the legislature. Mm-hmm. And I, I, made, I made him keep it a secret. I said, I don't want, initially I told him I wanted, uh, the, I told the governor, the president of the Senate and the Speaker of the House that I wanted $300 million. And, uh, and we needed a special session uh, Hurricane Andrew hit in August. We had a special session scheduled for December. Uh, by the end of uh, October, they said maybe 200. And by the end of uh, November, they said, we don't know that we're going to be able to do $90 million. And uh, that's when I, almost in a state of panic, uh, God blessed me, opened up my brain and poured into me the concept of getting the additional sales tax that was not even thought about. Uh, so I went to all three of those guys. They all agreed to uh, allow me to put that money in the trust fund and uh, decide for myself with two other people how it was going to be spent. Also threw in a three-quarters vote, uh, a 75% vote that was necessary in order to change it. <laughs> Got that into the minute. And uh, uh, only one person, the governor, asked me, how much money is that going to be? <laughs> and I crossed my fingers and said, Put him behind my back and said, "I don't know." <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, probably the only time I didn't tell the truth about something. Uh, it was six hundred fifty million dollars, and we recovered in four years. Wow! Where every other place recovered in uh, seven to ten years, uh, like like in New Orleans. Right. But uh, all those guys, every every time there was a natural disaster, I got that phone call, and uh, and uh, yeah. When we passed Rosewood, it was Republicans on both sides. Uh, we passed Rosewood uh, in '96, and uh, it it was it was a it was a battle, it was a fight. Uh, on the House side, they were able to to leverage uh, the Speaker of the House's uh, uh, pet project and refused to pass it in exchange for passing Rosewood bill. On the Senate side, we worked completely on the merits of the issue, and I got nine Republicans to come with me. Hmm which is how we were able to do it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing that that wouldn't happen now. I don't know. I, I think, uh, you know, that's all a function of leadership uh, and, and not trying to tell myself as a leader, but one of the things that I 
always believed in is that you have to treat everybody well. I think that's a kind of a U.S. Senate concept as well. You treat everybody well. You don't you don't have any hostilities toward anyone that you serve with. I think you you probably feel the same way. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, one of the things that I discovered uh, by accident was that uh, senators are so busy that they never go to each other's offices. And I started going to their offices. Yeah, Democrats and Republicans alike. And when you show up in another senator's office, they they stop. It stops the presses. What's going on? What do you need? And and that's when you have an opportunity to to un- without an appointment, you know, to just walk in and because they'll see you, uh, just to walk in and talk about whatever you want to talk about. And uh, that got me. Uh, I passed a lot of legislation doing that. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it building the you know you growing up. We used to see that little. I'm a little younger than you, so I remember the schoolhouse rock. I'm just a bill. Mm-hmm. I'm only a bill. And right. you know the reality is being in that position, you have to develop relationships. It's more exactly. than just the merit of the legislation. You've got to have a rapport with the people you're working with in order to uh, get things done. All right. When so, I first, go ahead. When I first got lecture, uh, there was a state representative, Willie Logan, who had been around for about six years longer than I had. And he told me when I first got there, he said, Daryl, remember this. Politics is all about relationships. You could have the best bill in the world that cures cancer, but if nobody likes you, it's not going to become law. Yeah. You could have the worst bill in the world, does away with public education, but if everybody likes you, we're doing away with public education. Hmm. So it's all about relationships, and I took that to heart. Yeah. All it right. made a difference. Yes, sir. So now we, we got to close this out, but I want to combine... Okay the last two questions I want to ask you into one, what is, <clears throat> excuse me, what is your assessment about the political mood in America? And based on your assessment, what's your big prediction for 2024? You've heard it so many times that we're more divided than we've ever been. Um, I think what has been emboldened is the, the violent side of uh, people who are not happy about getting the result that they demand. There's some entitlement out there, a sense of entitlement that says, it doesn't matter how many people are voting in a different way. What I want is what we should get. And that takes us away from a democratic society to more of an authoritarian society. And uh, Donald Trump has been able to uh, uh, embolden those concepts and those feelings. Uh, I think that the great majority of Americans, and Lyndon Johnson used to refer to them as the silent majority, which is what I'm seeing now. The great majority of Americans, and particularly the independents, uh, are not in favor of having violence become the decision maker of how we do our elected politics. Uh, And I think that it wouldn't matter if Colorado had never decided to take him off the ballot. Any state that's going to take him off the ballot, he wouldn't have won anyway. You know, so it's the other states, it's the the states that are borderline, you know, that that uh, that can swing in either direction that are going to make the difference. I doubt that any of those states are going to take him off the ballot. And I think that at the end of the day, I have faith. 
people used to really criticize me for this, but I have complete faith in the intellect of the average voter. I really do. The average voter, not every voter, but on average, they're going to make the right decision for this country. And I think that uh, as people criticize Joe Biden and his age and whether or not he's even a good president, if it comes down to those two people, they're going to reelect Joe Biden. That's what I believe is going to happen in 2024. If the Republican Party decides to take Trump out because one or two states and maybe and more are trying to take him off the ballot, and they recognize, the Republican Party recognizes the impact that that could have on other voters in swing states, then, and put someone else in, like a Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley could become president. But it really depends on what the party, the Republican Party, decides to do in light of what I believe will be a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court that is going to uphold the, the Colorado Supreme Court. And you've got 14 or so other states who are trying to do the same thing. I don't know that they have the same legislative infrastructure that Colorado does, but if they if they have something close and he starts coming off of Maine, thinks that they have what it takes to take him off the ballot and others. And remember, that's where George Bush Sr. lived. And so, uh, you know, if they're able to do that in one or two other states, I envision that the Republican Party will probably try to put someone else in. I don't, uh, and, and we'll see what happens. And of course, Trump is going to go down and kick in the screen. Yeah, no doubt. All right, um, Brother Daryl, if, if people want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you? Um, you know, I've got the losses of Daryl Jones' uh, Facebook page, even though I am retired. Uh, they could call the office if they want to, 305-969-3602. I, uh, uh, I still have people. Uh, my partners are running the law firm, but uh, I, they can still contact me that way as well. All right. Well, Brother Jones, it was good talking to you uh, again. Like I said, yeah, it was it was yeah. an honor to to have you on, and uh, look forward to even in your retirement. Look forward to you still doing some things to to help out in in the in the overall discussion as far as politics goes, not just in Florida but in the nation as well. well thank you. I appreciate the compliment. It's an honor to be here. Yes, sir. All right, guys, and we'll catch y'all on the other side. And we are back. So now let's get to our final guest, Talib Yassir. Talib Yassir is a creative entrepreneur, author, success coach, and podcast producer. He founded the Afros and Audio Podcast Festival in 2018, the first two-day conference for and by black podcast creatives and audio professionals, and Vanguard Podcast Network in 2020, a podcast production company. As a creative advisor, cultural relevance media consultant, and sought-after speaker, Tlaib has dedicated his career to helping individuals and companies reach their goals, drive meaningful change, and create equitable spaces for everyone. 
Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct honor and privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, Talib Jasir. All right, Talib Jasir, how you doing, brother? You doing good? Doing well, thank you. All right, well, what I try to do um, at the beginning of my interviews is that I like to give a quote out to a guest. It's either something they might have said, something they've written in a book, or something that pertains to the work or the topic that we're discussing. So your quote is really, really simple. It says, underrepresented voices must be heard. What does that quote mean to you? Well, I think it's important for us to recognize that words are not just words, right? And so for it to be said underrepresented, that it means there's also a thing that's occurring, right? That is uh, a feeling of being underrepresented, um, a feeling of not being seen or visible. And so, and I think, each of us as individuals, right, is subjective of how we internalize that, but we have to acknowledge that there's socialization, right? And so for me, that means that we as individuals get an opportunity to represent ourselves. Um, I often say, you know, at the what, whatever year it is in that moment, it's 2023, we're free people, right? And we get to act accordingly. And with that said, there is this opportunity for us to represent ourselves, uh, not wait on this this uh, anything external that represents or pro provides opportunities for us to represent ourselves. And so when I say it must be heard, it's really a call to action uh, for us to, for anyone who feels underrepresented to, to within means and within um, ability and capacity to uh, represent. So how did you get started into podcasting? Well, I started a podcast in 2017, and it's a four-part limited comedy uh, rom-com series, audio fiction. And it's called The Fussings Until One of Us is Dead. And um, that was something that I had been wanting to do for a long time, create audio fiction, creative uh, radio programming, audio programming, <laughs> excuse me. And... Um, when I had the opportunity in 2017 to create one, I did. And that led into Afros and Audio. It was really the, the catalyst for even starting um, the business that I'm, I'm known for now is this audio drama that I created and was really looking for uh, support and resources around other Black creatives who were making audio drama fiction at the time in 2017. So go into more detail about starting up uh, Afros and Audios. Because you were saying, I was reading somewhere that it was like you were looking around and you were asking people for things and nobody seemed to know or you were having kind of a struggle trying to build a network of resources. And so that kind of led you to saying, hey, we, we probably need to get together. So tell the that's, story that's better than I told it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. All right. Well, so I I, I am... A person who, in this in this particular instance with Afros and Audio, I was seeking community, and so I built it. And what I was seeking community around was very niche. It was about Black audio drama uh, creatives. 
And I wanted to, at that time, it is not what it is today, where there is Black podcasts, Black audio dramas exist, which is a full docu uh, directory for Black audio dramas and audio dramas created um, by Black, um, black uh, podcasters. So in 2017, this was a very niche before my time effort initiative. And uh, it took about a year before I realized that this wasn't going anywhere. Uh, what do I do? What's the pivot? And so I reached out to a fellow podcasters. His name is Simeon, and he uh, co-hosts Mixed Company podcast. And I met up with him in, in New York City at WeWorks. We probably talked about 20 minutes. And um, he suggested events. It's like, you know, I think this would be good if you kind of take this idea of building community and creating community virtually online and create some events here in the city. Um, I often say, people have heard me say that I think he meant a two-hour meetup, and I left there saying, you know what, I'm going to do a two-day conference uh, for and by Black indie podcast creators and audio professionals because it wasn't there, and uh, clearly we needed it, <laughs> something uh, to be able to get together and have these conversations about industry when it is still in its um, and it's a phase where where I believe that the creative, uh, the content creators can shape it. Without podcasts, there can be no podcast industry. And so I think it's up to us as podcasters being the most important people in the room with that knowledge to have uh, conversations about how we can shape this industry in a way that it benefits the content creators. So what was the moment that you realized this is going to work? This is we're going to be able to pull this off. What was, what was that particular moment? Cause you know, whenever you're starting something new, there's always going to be hurdles and challenges. There's going to be days where it's like, is this really worth my time and my energy? So what was that moment where you said Afros and audio is, it's going to happen? Definitely. Well, I started out uh, reaching out to other uh, folks that I saw in the space. I didn't come into the space thinking I was the only one and I was getting ready to create something new and and um, improve and that there was no one else that had already been here doing the work. And so what I did was I reached out to several uh, podcast influencers that I knew at that time and I got connected with, um, had conversations with them, each of them 20 to an hour long, 20 minutes to an hour long, just really talking about what the state of podcasting was, what the state of our uh, the people that we serve are black and black podcast professionals, audio professionals, um, and creatives. What was needed? I'm, I'm a person who comes from public policy, urban studies, and I recognize that oftentimes uh, organizations or policymakers will look from the outside in and say, "I know what you all need, not what do you all want or need." And so that was very important to me to uh, build this community knowing that there were people that already came before me and had been doing the work and how can I bring us together in a way that um, doesn't look like it's uh, just repeating the same thing or trying to recreate a will, but how does this move us forward? Um, how do we have these hard conversations that changes the narrative and changes how we see ourselves um, and value ourselves inside this industry? So you've kind of touched on it in some answers, but but bring it on home is why it's important for community uh, in any endeavor, not just the one that you, you work on specifically, but any endeavor that 
African-Americans are involved in? Sure. Well, Eric, I came from community. I was uh, raised up on a small farm on the eastern shore of Maryland, um, very rural area. And when you stand out in your front yard, you can see all the houses <laughs> within proximity, right? Um, so all the kids that were there and, and whether they are our age or not, I have a twin sister, we all played together. And I was um, privileged in a way that my great grandmother who raised, uh, raised myself and my sister, uh, she had the means to build a playground for us and my sister. We had two of everything, sit and spins, you know, everything you can think of um, in the 80s. Um, and so our house was the place where everyone came, all the children came. Um, and before I got there, this was a thriving community, right? I, I often joke that it sounds like I was born in 1875 and I was not. I was born in 1975. <laughs> but the way in which I was raised in that time, right, um, it was very community oriented and it came from a place. It came from sustenance, um, living before I even was born. And so I, I know what it's like for someone to knock on the door. My grandmother say, come in, have you eaten, <laughs> right? Um, whether it's the dictionary salesman or the insurance, uh, you know, man, who comes by? This is what's going to happen. I know what it looks like for bushels of vegetables or fish or crabs that we didn't um, particularly uh, harvest or catch ourselves, but to show up on our front porch and vice versa, what we had growing and someone else didn't have. I know what it's like to pick, <laughs> you know, collard greens out of someone else's yard because grandmom said, let's go. We're going to help them today. So for me, community is is what I know. And it is, and, and I know the best of it. You know, I know what it looks like when community works, when community understands kinship and um, reliability, and it's not, and provisions, and it's not a take, it's, it's, it's not a drain. It's, this is what we do. And so with that as my foundation and my basis, I'm very clear that as we move forward in life in 2024 and beyond, and I think the pandemic supported a lot of people in recognizing that it's the people, it's the community and it's relationships that is what's gonna move us forward um, if we're gonna be moved forward at all. Why do you think there was a disconnect? Because, you know, a lot of, a lot of people uh, had that story. I didn't grow up in a rural area. I grew up in a very urban area in the south side of Chicago. But there was that same sense of community, right? Uh, I was the guy that shoveled the snow for the neighborhood, for example. Um, what, what do you think happened that created a disconnect? where we lost that sense of community and now we're, we're trying to reinvent it, I guess, for lack of a better term. I mean, I think there's several factors. I mean, it starts from uh, inherited values and beliefs that we get from our respectability uh, parents, right? That, and it's all based on um, white, the white inferiority complex and all of this, this sort of thing where um, when, when for me, when they began to rebrand themselves on television in the 19, you know, <laughs> 60s and stuff, um, it began to kind of create this uh, disconnect in the brain of what is instinctual and intuitive for people and how people live. We start to get these constructs of how to live and what, the suppose, what it's supposed to look like. 
and inside of that, I believe became uh, came a lot of passivism, um, a lot of you're good now, so you don't got to worry about the next person. Um, and that is something that after a few generations and you see it start happening right in the 1980s and 90s, where it becomes every man for themselves in a lot of ways. And a lot of that is socialized and new behaviors. When our grandparents no longer live with us, they went off to the to the home. Um, you don't have that wisdom in the house anymore. You don't have, you know, your in-house babysitters, so to speak, meaning that your grandmother was there to to raise you and this sort of thing, and or your grandfather. I was lucky enough to have all of those influences, and so I just I think there's simply um, we 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 gradually moved away from it almost organically, but deliberately, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, and I think that people not understanding community as we know it, right? Um, then it then it it gets bastardized and it looks different and people are like, I don't want if that's community, I don't want it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um and so that that creates this, you know, cyclic cycle of not understanding what community really gets to be and then how to be supported and support inside of community. Um, we've lost that. And for me, I think it's important. Uh, for me to say every opportunity I get, for you to say every opportunity you get, that I come from community and kinship. I know what it feels and looks like when it's done uh, accurately. So let me let me impart that on you, and not only just by words, but an example. What is the biggest challenge? <clears throat> excuse me, uh, for African American podcasters, and what are you doing? to try to help them overcome that challenge? I think the hardest, um, there's a few challenges. And, and the first thing that came up for me was um, access. And for me in 2019, when uh, we had our first conference, my goal and my mission was to recognize that inside of a lot of industries and particularly media, radio, television, um, YouTube, any, any of these places where it's already been established for some time and those barriers of entry are high and um, the opportunities for growth are very low. What I began to recognize was that uh, when, when conglomerates or industries say, we're gonna lower the barrier of access uh, it's like, well, you created it, so just dismantle it. That's the other, see how the way we go. Because when you say um, we're going to lower it, just, that sounds to me like a VIP section. That sounds like you're you're opening up this 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 uh, gate for two seconds, and you're going to let people in, and then it closes, right? And then we then now we have to wait again for a turn. And so for me, it was about recognizing that. It is 2023, we are free people. We do not have to wait for external opportunities in order to create what, what, what is possible for us as content creators and monetization and what have you. And so I feel like uh, the thing is, is that because we are in the shroud of needing outside validation, outside opportunity, outside uh, support, that we get blinded, get really hazy about what we are what's possible for ourselves and the resources that we have within. And so with that said, I think the barriers are our mind <laughs> first. Um, 
And then recognizing that there that community supports when it comes to accelerating processes. So our goal, Afros and Audio, my goal is, is to build, and we've done this for five years, is to build that level of access that our indie podcast creators and audio professionals do not typically get. Um, the barrier is high when it comes to that. There are gatekeepers all over the place. And so without access, without access to information programs, uh, the latest trends, uh, the ways in which, you know, we must pivot or 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 get with technology as it, it, the emerging technologies. All of this is important for us to continue to stay in the game. And the goal is to increase uh, Black voices in the uh, global podcast market and to help sustain them when they get here. So as a political podcaster, I see the potential for growth in the genre and the potential impact for... Uh, well, the potential for impact in the national political landscape. What What is your thoughts about Black political podcasts and their their impact? Well, I think it's very necessary and very relevant, um, especially when it's aware and has some critical thought to it, uh, which your podcast has. So I appreciate that um, because you know all all conversations around the topic are not us uh, forward moving and progressive. And so, um, and doesn't, is not solution focused, right? And um, I think that's important. And so I feel like anyone with a voice, and, and that's why it's, it's really important for us to get into this genre because audio and broadcasting is to me, king of entertainment um, and will remain. Um, and I think that we are all laying down a living record right now of our experiences, of our perspective, um, of our knowledge. And to me, that is the most important part of podcasting um, from any perspective on any genre and specifically to the, poli the for politics, we have to make noise, right? We must make noise. That is the only way. Uh, I'm also a student of the, the nonviolent uh, movement and recognizing how powerful people have to be in their mind, right? It's easy to punch somebody in the face, right? <laughs> it's easy to retaliate, to retaliate in that way. It's, it's not easy to stand there and get punched in the face and to remain committed and convicted on that. And because of that, and because of the, the way in which the media had to begin to portray these two opposites, right? Um, it changed. It made things change. And for me, um, having a political podcast or a position is a catalyst for change and it's necessary. And those of us who have the capacity to do it, um, it's our it's our responsibility to reflect the times, as Nina Simone said. So I appreciate what you're doing. And I think it's important um, for more. Yeah. And I, and I thank you for that, because um, my my story um uh, was born out of frustration. Uh, I was I was Ubering here in Atlanta, and Donald Trump just kept coming on my Twitter feed, even disturbing my Uber riders. They were like, what is that buzzing noise? I said, that's the president tweeting. And then when I read it, it just drove me nuts, and I just started recording it. And, you know, my, my frustration, and that led to creating a podcast. And so, you know, the the double down on what you're saying about voices. 
I think there's a lot of questions that's being asked about the black political diaspora in America, black political thought. And so I, I, I would ask you, and I guess you, you, you kind of already answered it, but you concur that it is important for as many diverse voices because we get labeled as just being Democrats, right? And, you know, my personal political affiliation is Democratic, but there's a history behind that. Not every black person is like that. So I feel that it's important for all those voices to be heard because the to me, the objective should be a common goal instead of a common party. You, you feel what I'm saying with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I am. Um... When I first registered way back in, you know, my college days, uh, I registered as independent in that moment. Um, and I've been that that's been my affiliation ever since. I've never uh, voted anything other than Democrat, but um, but I, I registered as independent and I still am because I'm, I'm completely anti construct and conformity. And um, in a lot of ways, you know, we are living in the laws of the land, but the laws of the land suck <laughs> right <laughs> um to put it plainly and the things that are still occurring especially in the lives of um um well i can say black americans but it doesn't stop if you're getting your ass beat by the cops they don't care if you come from the caribbean or or africa uh you know any country in africa they're not going to stop to be like oh thank you let me stop now um so so it's one of those things where we have to recognize that we, in a lot of ways, we are still in the same boat as we always have been. Um, laws have changed, people haven't. And so with that said, there is, I, I thought that, you know, what we needed was this last generation of uh, white folks to die off. And I mean that very, however anybody wants to take it um, <laughs> in, in politics. And then, you know, maybe we bring in some fret, but no, they're raising new ones. And so um, with that said, I think it's it's just reaffirming, we must speak, right? We must speak. We must um, talk about the things that are still here presently, right? Um, there was a documentary just really briefly that I um, was watching it was about police brutality in 1997. And um, when the when the father was on the podium talking about, I hope one day this doesn't have to exist for another family. I just broke down crying and I turned it off because I'm like, this is 1997. We're still in this moment. Right. And it's just like. Politically. Uh, we are smart enough. We are capable enough right, to have these conversations. Um, and I believe that one person can create remarkable results, right? And um, the last thing I'll say about this is that a lot of people that we look up to and are heroes and all that sort of thing, um, while they did great things, they are people that made a decision just like any of us and we all have access to that. Um, so we can't think that because we are whoever we are being our, it's just me conversation, that we don't have the right and the ability to speak up for what we believe um, and what will change, you know, the lives of people that we care about uh, for this generation and, and beyond. 
All right, so closing out. If I was starting a Hall of Fame of Black Podcasting, I would have you, Chris Colbert, Tia Triplett, Corey Gums, Georgie Ann Gettin, and Demetrius Bagley as initial members. Who would you add to that list? Oh, wow. Um, Anthony Frazier, ABF Creative. Um, Carrie Ann from, uh, she, she has a Caribbean podcast directory um, and podcast. Shel Joseph from Canada, right? Um, Molly Jensen out of out of um, out of Kenya, doing the work that they're doing. Um, there's so many, and I and I think Anna with Black Pod Collective. Um, there are a lot of folks in this industry who uh, know how important it is for us to win inside of it, um, and that is having. I, I don't give a damn about an equal playing field. <laughs> we we get to excel, right? We get to, you know, all of those are code languages for I'll let you. And no, we will let ourselves <laughs> and we'll and we'll and we'll do what we need to do. Um and I think all these folks understand the importance of that. And yeah, I put them in my my Hall of Fame. Along with uh T and Queen with J uh T with Queen and Jay as well. Um they're amazing, amazing podcast hosts. Okay. All right, brother. So this is the promotion time now. Tell us how people can support, how people can get involved with Afros and audio, and just go ahead and make that pitch. Sure. So pre-sale tickets are on sale right now for Afros and Audio Podcast Festival. We're in our sixth year. It will be in Baltimore again this year. We're finally uh, setting up roots and, and building community um, in one city. We've been in Brooklyn online uh, Philly and Baltimore in the fifth year last year, this year. And um, we'll be back in Baltimore for the sixth year, October 18th and the 20th through the 20th, uh, 2024. And you can go to afrosandaudio.com to get your pre-sale ticket and also learn more about Afros and Audio. And you can find us on social at Afros and Audio. And you can find me on social at Talib Jasir. All right, Talib Jasir, I appreciate you, brother, coming on. Uh, I appreciate the work that you've been doing. Um, Thank you. I, I think that, you know, as somebody that's now engaged in podcasting, uh, just the resources that you and the others that I've mentioned uh, have given me the tools and the inspiration to keep it pushing. So I just, I just thank anybody that uh, makes other people, especially black people better. So thank you for coming on the podcast as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Eric. I really appreciate it. All right. And we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right. And we are back. So ladies and gentlemen, what an honor it has been for me to interview those three gentlemen and to have them on the podcast for you, my audience. Um, I hope I hope that you were entertained um, educationally. 
right? I hope that you you gather something from that and understand the distinction that these three men bring. So again, I want to thank them for coming on. Um, it's been an interesting week. Um, I had something to say about one of the events that took place this week. If you want to hear what I said, patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming, subscribe to that. And you can catch commentary that I have about events that are going on. Uh, I greatly appreciate y'all listening to the podcast. I encourage you to, uh, subscribe to the to the many moments on patreon i encourage you to tell your friends your family everybody because 2024 is real y'all it's here and my voice along with others are going to be the important reason why we can maintain the democracy that we have and build an america for everybody that's my goal And I hope that you share that with me until next time.